Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hey guys, it's Rena Jadhav. Welcome. And today in the house is a certified genius, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Hi, Daniel. Hi there. All right, a little bit about Daniel. So he is a Stanford, Harvard-trained physician, scientist, inventor, entrepreneur, and innovator, and over 25 years of experience in clinical practice, biomedical research, and healthcare innovation. He is... 35. (laughs) Well, you look like you're 20, so clearly you must have started when you were five. And of course, you're a faculty chair for medicine at Singularity University, uh, founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. And we could literally sit here and spend the next 45 minutes going over how amazing your background is and all the awards you've won from being a Kaufman Fellow, Cancer XPRIZE um, systems to a very exciting new precision pill startup that you're going to talk about hopefully soon. Um, with that said, welcome. I, this is truly a privilege, and I'm just super excited to dive right in. All right, what's exponential medicine? For those of our listeners who are not uh, plugged into the Silicon Valley. So, you know, the term exponential uh, often is sort of the, those of you remember your math, when things sort of go in double. So 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, those numbers get really big. Uh, 30 exponential steps and you're at a billion. And the classic exponential technology here in Silicon Valley is Moore's Law, the power of computing getting faster and cheaper, which is why my you know, new Apple Watch has you know, more computing power and speed and price performance, uh, several fold more than a crazy supercomputer from 20 years ago. And um, exponential medicine is a program I started at a singular university seven years ago. And the concept was there's a lot of technologies moving quickly from Moore's Law and mobile and sensors. Uh, to artificial intelligence, to big data, to 3D printing, to the price of genomics, sequencing dropping at twice the rate of Moore's Law. So things that are moving sometimes exponentially, sometimes just quickly. And how might we think about using that that mix of fast-moving technologies that are getting faster, cheaper, more available to reshape and reimagine and even reinvent elements of health and medicine, from health and prevention and wellness, keeping us healthy, to uh, doing a better job at diagnosing disease early, stage zero, and then stage three or four, stage four. How can therapy more, be more precise, less expensive, from a digital all the way to gene therapy with CRISPR that's moved quickly, uh, all the way to global health? How do we democratize healthcare with the power of an AI on your smartphone and a, a, a chatbot and a drone? We could potentially open up access to basic health and medicine around the planet. So a little bit of trying to instill that speed of technology think how we can mash it together to address pain points in healthcare. And this conference, Exponential Medicine, has grown from 100 folks at our NASA Ames Center to about 700. We meet every fall at the beautiful Hotel Del Coronado, the oldest resort on the West Coast, and spend four days crossing the spectrum. And unlike most medical conferences, it's not all oncologists like me or cardiologists or rheumatologists or or pharma or derm. It's a, it's a mix of people from across the spectrum, from patients to investors to technologists to payers. And something sort of magical happens when you get people mixed up and up to speed with what's happening with the latest in gene therapy or AI or 
uh, nanotech uh, yeah. or mental health. So a lot of things happen there. The website, uh, we, we'll, we still have a few spots left, exponentialmedicine.com. We sell it every year. And it's fun as we have amazing faculty, about 70 this year. Uh, 500 participants are selected from around the spectrum, 50 startups, and a lot of kind of magical ideas and convergences and inspiration happen for people to kind of meet there and get catalyzed by learning what's already here, let alone what's coming. So for a lot of us, we're not going to have the opportunity to be there. So help us reimagine healthcare the way it pertains to me as a consumer. You know, my experience, Daniel, today is not that different from what it was um, 20 years ago, which is I go to a doctor when I have a complaint. My doctor runs a bunch of tests, and those of you who follow me know this. Sometimes they don't find anything despite your symptoms, and that's true for 45% of us women. And uh, and we kind of go from there to taking prednisones and, and pharmaceutical meds. How is the world out there being reimagined by these brilliant geniuses who come to your events and you get to see sort of this awesome, you know, top-down view of all the different things that people are doing. So what does our future look like? And how soon is it here? Well, in many cases, it's somewhat already here. Uh, there's a, a famous quote, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yes. And uh, those of us here in Silicon Valley, we think everyone has an Apple Watch and drive their Tesla. That's not most of the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, at Exponential Medicine, by the way, we, we live stream it for free. So exponentialmedicine.com starting 1 o'clock on November 4th through about 1 o'clock on November 7th. So you can catch it all. There's actually lots of talks at exponentialmedicine.com slash videos. So there's lots of content there. So catch it that way. But to answer your question, um, you know, I think a lot of fields have moved quickly. We've rerunited banking and how we get our entertainment and music. All these things have entered the fourth industrial age. Health and medicine seems a bit stuck in the second That's or third. Right. We're, still using, we're still using fax machines to communicate. You're still probably going to the doctor and answering the same questions with a number two pencil on a chip clipboard, even yep. down the street from Stanford. Yeah. And so, uh, Part of it is the challenge of innovation in healthcare is different than shipping a product that's a widget for consumer use or an app for a game. And for good reason, we need some good regulatory elements. We have uh, reimbursement challenges. Uh, we want proof that things work. But big picture is if you've, you've experienced a lot of healthcare is really sick care. We focus uh, not on keeping healthy. Uh, we have very intermittent bits of data. Uh, you know, only usually when you go into the four walls of the clinic and get your blood pressure checked and a maybe some labs and maybe a temperature and your weight. So hopefully you're only in a clinic or God forbid a hospital, like when zero, 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 one percent of your life. What about all the data in your real life, your real life digital exhaust and your vitals to your mood, to uh, a term that's often called, you know, the, not just your, your genome and microbiome, but your digitome, all the elements that uh, increasingly in our exponential age can be captured by your smart home, your smart watch, your mattress. Um, so what we have the potential to do is go from our intermittent sick care model where we wait for the disease to present, often at late stage, to a new era where we're much more continuous with our data, and that data becomes information. That's information that you as an individual, a consumer, or a patient own and can hopefully help make sense of and use in partnership with your healthcare team to help keep you healthy or pick up the disease early or manage a problem. So we move from sick care, intermittent reactive, to more continuous, proactive, personalized, real-time, that's infused with real-time big data information that matches you. Uh, you know, given that even the best trained doctor today 
uh, on average, maybe we a journal two or three hours a month. There's no way to keep up with latest guidelines information, let alone the explosion of omics and digital exhaust. Yeah. So we need, we need to integrate and synthesize and do what humans do well with what you know, AI, machine learning systems, biology can do to kind of shift the needle um, as they move forward. And part of that's a bit of a mindset. You know, millennials have a different relationship with their doctors than a, than a baby boomer. And, uh, you know, I want to just talk by chat. <laughs> uh, you know, older generations, they expect to go to Dr. Welby and they'll tell them what to do. And the youngsters today, you know, want to be empowered and, and own their health information and share it when they can. Yeah. So there's a lot of things moving and there's a lot of unevenly distributed technology. Um, and it's a real amazing age now where, you know, empowered entrepreneurs and patients like yourselves can catalyze and bring new things together to, to shift the needle uh, across the healthcare continuum. One of the things that I got really excited about was this video in one of your talks where the mirror is diagnosing me, right? So I'm brushing my teeth and imprinted on the mirror are all these readouts, uh, which is telling me kind of what, what my internals are looking like today. And I think you call it internet of body. Talk a little bit about that. What is the internet of body and and how far away are we from it? Well, we're in the era of Internet of Things. You know, our homes are increasingly connected. I'm wearing a ring that tracks my sleep and steps. That connects to my smartphone. That can send that data to my medical director at Stanford. I can log into my, you know, adjust the temperature in my house. All these things are becoming super connected in a cheap, more available way. So there's the Internet of Things, which is now not going to ride just 4G, but 5G is rolling out this year. It's going to be 100 times faster. And then we have the opportunity, the Internet of body, internet of health, internet of medicine, to connect the dots amongst all these elements and hopefully use that digital breadcrumbs from our, our digital exhaust and our other data to um, help us be more proactive, to pick up a problem early. Let's take something simple. Uh, mattresses today, you can buy a little sensor on your mattress that will track your sleep. Um, you know, how much time you're awake, restlessness, you can pick up heart rate and respiratory rate. And uh, let's say it notices your resting heart rate is normally 55, but it's creeping up to 70. Wow. Wouldn't you like to know that's not normal, that you changed 20 points or 15 points? Would your doctor or cardiologist want to know that? So a bit of a internet of things from a mattress to uh, how you use your smartphone, how you're typing, it might indicate changes in neurologic conditions, mental health, depression. And then hopefully it can be giving you a bit of that check engine light for the body. Look in the mirror, you can see your digital coach um, or your Amazon Alexa or Google Home talks to you and helps give you a little prompt about, hey, you're going to go to the gym this morning. Oh, don't forget to take your vitamin D or your blood pressure medication. So as these things get more connected and smarter and can tune to the individual, there's a lot of opportunity to uh, engage people in their health in a more sort of natural way than waiting to go to the doctor. And uh, also to, to crowdsource that data so we understand what it means. We don't really even know what to do with a lot of this digital exhaust out there, let alone you know, patients' full genomes and microbiome data other information that's exploding in availability, but isn't yet going from data to information. And that's the whole check your body light, the way you would check your engine light analogy comes from. And I think that is so cool. So to that said, Daniel, how do you check your body's engine light these days? So you showed us your aura ring. Um, you've got your watch. Walk, walk our listeners and viewers through kind of what does Daniel's day look like with respect to self-care? Well, sometimes it's simple things like, you know, you don't need to be wearing up that little patch that'll, you know, track my full-on EKG and temperature and position and heart rate and all those other elements, like an intensive care unit on the patch. <laughs> yeah. A company called Vital Connect. But sometimes it's simple things like my scale, uh, when you step on it, it shows you your change from last time you were on it. So I've got a long 
out for a long weekend, haven't really been exercising or eating, eating a little too much. And I see that my weight's gone up 1.5 pounds. Boy, that is a little bit of a, not necessarily a check engine light, but a little bit of a gauge to go, Hey, next couple of days, I'm going to be watching my caloric intake or getting to the gym. So simple nudges, like seeing your temperature delta can be there. Um, this ring or my Fitbit or my Apple watch, <laughs> pretty, pretty good job of tracking sleep or my lack of hence my coffee today. Um, uh-huh. And sleep can be a really interesting thing that's indicative uh, to help you optimize your health and wellness and energy on the way to picking up problems early, like sleep apnea. You know, a simple you know, consumer wearable now can pretty much tell who uh, has sleep apnea, which can lead to early death, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. Um, so I don't do too many fancy things. Okay. Uh, I, I try and t- track my activity, my sleep. Um, last week, I was in San Diego. I went to... Uh, company called Human Longevity Incorporated, a mm-hmm. platform called Nucleus. I had my second time on my full body scan with MRI. So it's a nice. quite amazing, rare type of checkup. It quantifies your brain, looks at your cardiac activity, screens you for basic tumors. Now, that's not something most people need to or should be getting every year. But that it's is expensive, right? What's it costing these days? It's come down quite a bit. I don't know their yeah. exact price point today, but three or four years ago, it was 25000 Now it's under 5000 and uh, there's a lot of debate about what kind of scans are, especially at a population level, reasonable to do, even mammograms and colonoscopies. But um, it was an interesting way to get a real quantification. I've had my genome done, full genome done three or four times, my microbiome analyzed. So luckily, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I've got pretty good genes from the side that I don't have obvious genes that can be high production for Alzheimer's or certain cancers. But, th- but we know that while genetics are important, it's our behaviors that are much more impactful for those diseases. You've all heard of um, BRCA1 and the risk for breast cancer, but most women who develop breast cancer do not have those genetic markers. It's just when they give you higher risk. So we can't be uh, complacent based on the fact that your 23andMe's profile gives you reasonably normal risk. So part of what I optimally like to do is use my technology to help give me nudges, make sure I uh, want to get my little badges or points if I've gone to the gym and rode my Peloton. I like yeah. to share that on Facebook or on uh uh, on another social platform to get encouragement. Um, so there's lots of ways I kind of try and use these digital nudges to encourage me to sort of stay on the straight and narrow. And, and it's also good to know that coffee is one of the few things that's still good for you. So that said, if I said to you, okay, Daniel, of all the things you've got, you can only keep one. Which is the one thing that you would actually continue to keep? Well, I think what's... None of us want to be wearing 50 wearables and 50 health apps. Uh, what's interesting now is you know, the convergence of all this now on my you know, smartwatch. This is the next, you know, the new generation Apple Watch. Is that what you would keep? Soon it will, well, it tells the time. <laughs> it gives me my text <laughs> um, I, can track, I can track my real-time heart rate on it, or I can even do, this is before the Apple EKG version. I can actually do a real, a real EKG on it. I can try and do the live demo right now. Uh, bottom line, it'll do an EKG on the watch uh, okay. before Apple is able to do that. So right. that's probably my go-to. That's okay. a phone built into it. So that's cheating because it has so much capability, but it's a bit of an example of all these sensors coming to an easy-to-place location, your watch. And, you know, uh, there's a, we talk about a check engine light for the body. These are becoming that. These will now detect a fall, or if your heart rate is running 180 and it's normally 80 when you're sitting down. In fact, there was a, a gentleman who tweeted back in February on Twitter. He shared a picture of his Apple Watch, his Apple Watch 1, the very early version. He said, uh, never thought a little stupid wrist computer I bought three years ago would save my life. Uh, saw that my heart rate was 180, 
brought myself to the hospital. Turned out I have a pulmonary embolism and I caught wow. his lung. So by noticing his digital data, um, he, he says, wow, 180 is not normal. He brought himself to the ER and found a very significant life-threatening condition. Now, in the future, your watch may be calling your cardiologist or bringing you the Uber ambulance before you even know. Right. Little minority report. But that's examples of where this can head. And as we now have millions of people with our digital exhaust, we'll start to learn what is that early sign of someone about to have a stroke or a fall or a heart attack. Um, this can do an EKG. You can also look at the waveforms in the EKG and predict if my potassium is high or if I had atrial fibrillation. The company that makes this current attachment in the live core. Um, they're doing over a million EKGs a month. They're a big data company. So I'll keep that one for now. Um, All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. So let's talk autoimmune for a moment. Um, there's been a couple of interesting talks on the exponential at the exponential conference around the fact that the microbiome um, has now been identified as, as potentially a leading cause of a lot of the autoimmune diseases, including diabetes and MS and, and Crohn's. What are you seeing in terms of the fact that autoimmune is a crisis? It's an exponentially growing crisis. And clearly, we've got to come at it with an exponential solution. Is there anything you're excited about out there that you feel could help those of us who dealt with it in the past? I think we're in an interesting era now with autoimmune diseases and other diseases where we can start to define them at the molecular and the genetic level. Let's take something that's often autoimmune related or can be uh, diabetes, especially mm -hmm. type 1, but also type 2. You know, they have a common sort of endpoint. Your blood sugars run high. Uh, you might be insulin dependent. Or uh, type 2 diabetes, often from folks who are overweight, have uh, poor insulin sensitivity. It's called type 2 diabetes, but in reality as we've taken now thousands of type 2 diabetics and now analyzed their genomes, there's at least three distinct subtypes that respond differently to drugs, diet, and other interventions. Similarly, diseases like lupus or uh, different, um, uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's. You know, there's not just inflammatory bowel disease, it's Crohn's or, uh, uh, or IV. You know, there's probably very different subclasses, which can be potentially typed from the patient's microbiome, which might change and adapt and be a trigger. Um, all the way to, you know, what's the immune type of that patient? Um, and uh, I think it's going to get super interesting now that we can faster, cheaper, and more available ways integrate that data from thousands of patients and start to make sense of this at the molecular level so that you're not waiting to get a diagnosis uh, based on a convergence of old symptoms that are ranked in some strange way. Uh, they can be even discovered in real time by the patients themselves. So lots of opportunity, both for prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. And to what extent does regenerative medicine, which I know is a passion of yours, how does that play into this, if at all? Well, regenerative medicine is a pretty broad field. It's the, the idea that you can repair, replace uh, damaged or aged or uh, traumatized tissues, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's the heart after a heart attack, you know. Uh, or diabetes, right? Getting your pancreas back to function again. Yeah, right. Uh, if you've lost your beta islet cells from autoimmune disease or from removing your pancreas, mm -hmm. folks have had pancreatitis, which is often autoimmune disease in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, uh, it's a broad field. There's a lot of hype around it. People are one of the first stem cells and everything. So get stem cell therapy. Um, I'm actually been in stem cell therapy. Bone marrow transplantation, which is the field I've trained in, is a form yeah. of stem cell transplantation we've been doing for 50 years usually to treat cancer patients and reboot their immune system. But there are some interesting applications to take adult and embryonic and even these induced pluripotent stem cells to apply to certain diseases. So 
Where we are today is, yes, we can treat certain cancers quite well. We can start to treat some autoimmune diseases with stem cell transplants. Those, in effect, are a bit big gun. We're kind of wiping out the immune system, the, 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 the forming stem cells that make B cells, D cells, etc., and replacing that often with patients' own blood stem cells back. That's a form that's being used in some success with autoimmune disease. Um, uh, that's been done also now to treat genetic disorders like sickle cell or thalassemia. The hope is we can even not need a transplant. We can do some genetic manipulation with CRISPR and gene editing to take a patient with sickle cell or thalassemia and change their stem cells, put them back in, and reboot a healthy blood and marrow system. Um, in, in, in regenerative medicine for autoimmune disease, it might depend. If you have sources of the liver from an autoimmune disease and you need a new liver, well, there's not really... Uh, ability to, to regenerate an entire liver and the test you and put it back in. There's some interesting work there. We might want to trigger how do you turn the liver back on to regenerate itself, exactly. which we normally exactly. do. Exactly. Um, or the heart or the exactly. brain or the blood. Um, so it's a broad field. I'll stop there for a second. So do you, now, have you banked your stem cells? Have you tested it out on yourself? And, and what are your thoughts on adipose versus blood stem cells? Well, many of us, including my kids, I bank their cord blood, um, yeah. even though knowing as a pediatrician and transplant doc that the, the odds of using those are pretty minuscule, but, you know, it's a bit of like an insurance policy. Yeah. Um, as a parent, you just kind of feel compelled to sign on the dotted line because you just don't know the future. Yeah. But it's, it's a great racket. But, but how about adults? It's a bit of a racket. And adults <laughs> now the potential to uh, potentially bank your own bone marrow drive stem cells. Yeah. Of blood. Or and adipose. Then, what do you think of adipose? Those are very different types of stem cells. So right. In the fat, the adipose, which you can do with your liposuction, you can get a population of mesenchymal stem cells, MSCs, which seem to possibly play a role in tissue regeneration or healing of a joint, for example, okay. um, or could be expanded outside the body and used in a variety of potential ways uh, to treat everything from potentially from stroke to heart disease. You can also take cells from the bone marrow. And there's a lot of varieties of cells and progenitors in both, both fat and, and marrow. And depending on what cell population, how you deliver it, what, what patient population, you can get very different results. And the jury is still out for many of these. Mm -hmm. um, I developed a technology uh, out of Stanford called the Marrow Miner because I was frustrated mm -hmm. with how to marrow with a big needle. Um, you can watch a TED talk about it on the Marrow Miner. We developed a Generation 2 device, which hopefully let you get which lets you get marrow out from a patient, a patient or donor, much more quickly and more cells out, which could be used to do a bone marrow transplant or to treat the uh, cardiac issue that might benefit from marrow-derived stem cells or to bank your own marrow um, years before you might have a problem. Um, people are banking their own marrow. People are banking their own fat stem cells. Um, it's not clear that there's an obvious use case for those yet. Um, we're also, interestingly, looking at taking marrow from an organ donor, let's say someone who's donating an organ, heart, liver, kidney, uh, after brain death, and also taking bone marrow from that organ donor to help polarize the recipient. Because as you might know, most folks who get an organ like a liver, heart, or kidney are not receiving that from an identical twin, so they require immunosuppression. So there's now some looks at helping kind of transplant the immune system or polarizing the recipient with the bone marrow of the donor. So we're working on harvesting bone marrow from the bone marrow from the organ donor as well as the organ.
Should people consider doing stem cell banking? I mean, I actually did it. So I'm out there testing everything on myself and then writing up uh, my experiences in my blog. So for those of you who are listening and are interested, you can check out Health Bootcamp's blog on my experience and uh, flying out to Florida and, and uh, working with the stem cell organization, which is a public company in, in banking my stem cells. But is this something that's still too questionable, too early to know whether it's worth the investment, or is this something you recommend that everybody do if they can afford it? Well, there's absolutely frankly, no recommendation that everybody should do because it really depends on what cell population you're talking about that you bank. Is this, are these fast cells? Are you using them for- Yes, adipose. For, for, for a joint issue, for a cardiac issue, for a GI issue? Is, you know, and, and well, the thing those- is, Daniel, as you get older, uh, you know, you're 20, so you don't know how it feels for us, you know, 48-year-olds. But the older we get, it seems like everything starts to need a little upkeep, right? So your gut starts to misbehave, your joints start to misbehave, your skin starts to fall down. I mean, it's, you want to talk about exponential aging, you know, I think between the ages of sort of 45 and 65 is that exponential aging that occurs. And so the point is, could stem cell therapy or stem cell banking be one of those preventative things where you bank it and every year you go get your stem cell shot and um, it goes in and it sort of slows down that process of injury, internal injuries and slows down the process of aging. That's a potential hope, but there is a lot of hype out there. There are frankly Uh a lot of snake oil salesmen or stem cell snake oil salesmen that will say, hey, we're going to inject you with stem cells and it's going to cure aging and ringing in your ear and hangnails and everything under the sun. Yeah. So the trick is to become very clear, um, you know, who's doing it? Is it some fly-by-night mm-hmm. uh, clinic offshore? Uh, have, has it, are these uh, done in a proper laboratory? I mean, the cells, how were they processed, manipulated if they were? Uh, are there clinical trials using that exact population on a population of problem like yours in a, hopefully a double-blind, placebo-controlled manner? It's a, a tough nut to crack. Um, and I don't want to say there's no use for stem cell or banking your cells. I just think you want to be, the clear use would be to bank your marrow-derived cells, put them in the freezer, and God forbid you develop a leukemia or lymphoma in the future where you could use those cells back uh, and they were clear of cancer. That could help in a, in a bone marrow transplant cancer setting. Um, and I don't want to pretend to know every single indication of the field. I think there are already clinics out there where you can get bone marrow cells injected into your knee or your joint and already using orthopedic procedures to spot It'll help speed up spinal fusions uh, and other uh, uh, orthopedic uh, surgeries. So there's a lot of potential applications. Some are well-proven and some are frankly still a bit scared. So for someone who's listening to this, you know, what is your answer to the question, what is it that I don't know and my doctor is not telling me? Given that the, the medical system, the doctors today, when they get recertified, They don't necessarily come and attend your events, right? They don't necessarily have access to all the amazing things that are happening in kind of small pockets of our nation or even globally. So what is it that I as a consumer must know in regards to sort of being empowered to manage my own health today? It's a great question. And Vince, a little bit about who you are and your energy and appetite and, and ability to start becoming engaged and as you've done, you know, become the sort of CEO of your own health in a sense mm-hmm. and not wait for your clinician to come up with a magic solution because the reality is doctors are human. Um, even if you, uh, you know, and 50% of doctors are below average. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 
And even the, the, the top. That. But there yeah. were some who almost failed and barely made yeah. it. And they're still the doctors. Girl, you know, the guy, girl graduated last in the medical school class. Call them, call them um, and, and there's no one, you know, we want to go to Dr. House and figure that they're going to figure it all out and sneak into your house and find all the clues. But in reality, I would encourage you, everybody to become, you know, engaged in your own health. You can track your basic vital signs. You can get your labs done in a variety of online services that you can then share and go through with your clinician. Um, you can become a member of, of crowdsourcing. If you have an autoimmune disease. Uh, let's take one. We mentioned Crohn's disease. Uh, a guy named Sean Aarons from Crohn's disease started a, a, a website called Chronology, kind of like a Facebook group for Crohn's patients to get together to share their lessons, what things work for them. They did their own crowdsourced clinical trials. There are websites like Patients Like Me, where you can kind of enter virtual trials and, and share your own data to help speed up discovery, whether by the crowd or by biopharma. There are uh, things like Smart Patients by Ronnie Zeiger, who used to be the chief doc at Google Health, enable cancer patients to find solutions and guidance from patients who've been through a cancer journey like you have. Uh, so you're not scared and going through this, learning the same mistakes and jumping in the same, uh, falling in the same holes. So there's a lot of ability now to become more empowered, more engaged, more connected, uh, use the social network elements, and uh, be more of a co-pilot in your care rather than waiting for your doctor or now a completely often uncoordinated group of specialists to, to figure out a complex case. Of all the things that are out there, there's so many startups that are, you know, every day get funded in digital health. They, they hit new highs. It's, it's actually a really exciting time, I feel, as an investor, as well as an, as an entrepreneur, to be in this space because um, the possibilities are infinite at this point. With that said, I'm sure you have a very interesting perspective of where you see lots of startups focusing versus areas of great opportunity that really no one's sort of identified yet. So for those of us who are founders that are listening into this, where is there still, oh, what they would say, a blue ocean? Well, if I told you that, then you'd scoop me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, well, you, you, you don't want to do everything, right? So share the, uh, the areas that you're not focusing on. No, what's amazing is this is a time where entrepreneurs, often folks like yourself who didn't start in healthcare, you might, you might be a good game engine designer, UI expert, or a 3D printer, person, you know, this idea that this convergence of tools, technologies, mindsets, and all these unmet needs out there, whether it's remembering to take your meds or picking up early cancer or, uh, you know, managing Alzheimer's in new ways or, you know, using Uber to deliver patients to, to, to hard to reach uh, clinics is all kind of coming together. Um, so, you know, obviously the hot things right now are, you know, no startup can not have AI and blockchain in their name and digital health. It's a bit of a joke, but... It is interesting now that AI is becoming a bit democratized and there's now more data sets that we can apply this lens of AI machine learning and, and uh, deep learning to really get some insights out of, you know, you know, training your app to look at your rash as a melanoma or a mole uh, to work that Google DeepMind has done, taking a picture of your retina with a pretty simple iPhone, smartphone attachment that can predict uh, lots of diseases from looking at the better retina. Um, Blockchain uh, can be super helpful potentially to keep some of this data safe and secure and to be enable us to share it. So there's lots happening in that sort of digital health data, make big data useful information. Where I think there's some more open space, you know, we're, we're entering this age wave, the baby boomers, 10,000 are turning 65 every day. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to enable smart technologies for aging in place uh, for everything from, you know, um, 
you know, a hearing aid that also has a smart coach and track your vital signs. You can guide someone with really dementia or just help them uh, hear better, have more situational awareness. There's um, a lot of opportunity, uh, particularly as the incentive shift from our sick care model to healthcare to get paid for things that keep people healthy uh, rather than waiting for disease to happen. So companies like Omada Health, one of the darlings of digital health in San Francisco, um, has you know, developed a digiceutical for taking pre-diabetics and putting a social network, step counter, social pressures, et cetera, and often turn people around from not becoming that type 2 diabetic that gets sick and expensive. So that's an area, as an example, where there's more and more opportunity. And that's a, you know, where we spend a lot of our dollars on the you know, very sick and intensive care unit, shifting some of that on the proactive wellness side. This idea of precision wellness, whether it's to optimize your microbiome, uh, personalize your diet, some of this still has some ways to go. Uh, companies out there are actually claiming some things that are not yet always fully vetted, but a lot of energy in, the, in those spaces. So, well, you're working on something very exciting. Do you want to share information about the EPIL? Sure. Well, I always like to look at from the angle of what's a pain point that you might be able to solve in new ways. Um, I went to the Stanford Biodesign Program when I was a fellow, and that's why I invented my marrow or technology. It's I had the pain point of harvesting bone marrow, and took an hour and a half. One of the pain points I experienced a lot uh, as a clinician, I trained in both pediatrics, little kids, and adults, big kids, uh, internal medicine. You know, when kids will measure a dose of the medicine down to the milligram and dose very carefully, but all of a sudden they're 16, everyone's on the same size yeah. pill pretty much until, you know, even if they're a 300 pound football player or they're a frail nursing home. Exactly. Player. And then a lot of people don't take their medications. Um, it's often they're taking too many, uh, or it's just they need to be on these pills, but they're not adjusted based on their age and weight. So two big pain points. One is precision. Can we get the right dose and combination that matches you rather than me? Uh, the other one is adherence. Once you've got the right dosings, you're still taking a pile of pills. So this is a pain point, two pain points. And I thought in this era of digital manufacturing, you can 3D print your bases, your hearing aids. What if we could 3D print your own personalized pill that matches you? So I've uh, started a little company around that, have a little prototype, and actually give a TED Talk this summer, which will go online on TED.com on October 18th. So take a look there to look at a bit of this convergence of how we can take some of our new data, digital exhaust, and translate that into new ways to manage common conditions like high blood pressure, which often requires three or more pills a day, or uh, cardiovascular disease and beyond. So that's one thing I'm working on, kind of to make medicine more intelligent, but you hopefully pick the right drugs, combinations, and matchings for you for both prevention and therapy and the new ways where eventually you'll print your pill at home in the morning and it'll pop out for in the dose and combination you need that day. I completely agree. I think we've, we've reached the stage where you can personalize and order clothes on the internet. It's about time we can personalize and order our pills as well. So uh, clearly very exciting. And uh, of course, we're going to put that in the show notes. For those of you who are watching or listening, keep an eye out on the show notes. Uh, for the TED Talk and for the additional information on this. All right, you know, uh, one of the things that I've read over and over again, which uh, is concerning and yet is quite questionable in my mind, is the fact that AI is going to replace X percent of doctors. You know, there's n all kinds of numbers. So I read a report that said that 50% of radiologists will be obsolete, that uh, machine learning is going to do it, and then we're going to need half less radiologists. Um, there's similar stats on, on other areas like surgery, for example. 
how real is that future where smart machines um, take over? And so we really don't care about that medical doctor crunch anymore because that's the other thing that people are worried about is that we just don't have enough doctors to take care of this incredibly rapidly aging population. Yeah, we clearly have a big time shortage in doctors, nurses, specialists, supportive care in rural California, let alone the rest of the country and the planet. And, you know, a lot of people like to raise, you know, the no coast load would be speaking of special medicine, like say oh, 80% of doctors, 80% or so of doctors could be replaced by robot or AI. Yeah. I'd like to think of it differently that 80% of doctors, nurses, etc. could be augmented and helped by AI. We're still going to need radiologists and pathologists and dermatologists, but what they do might be a bit different. They're not going to spend 80% of the time looking for normal chest x-rays or looking at normal rashes. They'll be directed to help figure out the tougher cases, to communicate that, to synthesize the information. Um, there's a shortage of radiologists in most parts of the world. Um, there's a shortage of surgeons in many parts of the world. So yeah. in certain areas, like the San Francisco area, we always have, always have too many specialists in concentration. But... On balance, I think, you know, the role of the clinician will change in certain ways. We're, we're selected and trained in medical school to memorize, not always synthesize. Part of what these tools will enable us to do is kind of use a different part of our brain to um, be a connector, to help solve problems in a new way, to, to help patients use new connected tools and data sets and apps. And that we as clinicians won't wait for you to come in after you have a bad problem. We'll get a little check engine like dashboard and say, I need to call you today. It's like your blood pressure is running off. Or maybe we should be tweaking your your microbiome regimen that will impact your risk for colon cancer or other issues. So lots of ways I think things will meld. How we train the physician in the future, that's a big question. How do we leverage a lot of these new technologies that are here today into the workflow? I mean, it's not just about changing patient or consumer behavior. How do you change doctor behavior? We don't yeah, want... that's huge. Doctor. We don't that's want education. Well, it's both education, but also user-centered design. I mean, yeah. the healthcare electronic medical records today honestly suck. It's called an epic fail because it takes like twice as much time to input the data than time you have face to face with your patient. Um, people are working on LP systems to do charting. These EMRs, electronic medical record systems today, aren't frankly made for optimizing patient care outcome. They're optimized for patient billing, right? Yes. We get what you think about it. We have uh, not evidence-based medicine, but uh, incentive-based medicine. And the incentives are around billing and charting yeah. uh, and check prices. So, there's a lot of things that need to go into shifting healthcare. There's many healthcare systems, especially in the United States. Some things can happen at a VA or a Kaiser or a Geisinger. You have an integrated system where you're aligned with prevention and therapy. Others will be slower. Um, some innovations will leapfrog the United States where everything's done on mobile. Absolutely. Yeah. has a big yeah. shortage of doctors. Now they have a good doctor app, I think 200 million users in a couple of years uh, using it very actively. So tons of new markets and opportunity for entrepreneurs, not just here in the Western world, but in very underserved parts of the world, as two or three billion people are going to come online in the next couple of years as well. Absolutely. So, as you look at the future, what is the one reality in healthcare that you're most excited about? Cancer journeys are very complex. Those can be optimized and aren't going to be owned by any one app or drug company or device company or digital health company. So, how do we create these integrated solutions that help give us? integrated and bulky buildings. So that's one piece. Uh, other ones are, you know, still in the sort of crazy exciting era, gene editing with CRISPR, which is only a six or seven year old technology, is moving pretty quickly. I was in Boston a week ago. I saw George Church, the chairman of genetics from Harvard, who's been working on 
using CRISPR gene editing to knock in human genes and knock out pig genes from humanized pigs, pigs that are human-sized. You can now think about talking about regenerative medicine. Yes, we want to be able to read different organs. It's a sexy idea, but still lots of challenges there. What if you can instead, given the shortage of organs, take a pig from from an organ, human size from a pig, use that. Um, so they're genetically modifying pigs to do xenotransplantation, already in primate models. And so it may be not science fiction in 10 years that if you need a new liver, kidney, heart, uh, you'll be getting that. Won't be kosher, but you'll be getting it from a, from a pig should you really need it. Um, and that's an exciting example of convergence. Another one of my favorite areas that's moving quickly is technology that's zooming from you know, the gaming world, virtual reality, augmented reality, and starting to hit healthcare. Virtual reality, I've got my Oculus Rift over the room. Yeah. Uh, I've got this old $500 version that needs a whole computer. Now I've got the $200 version of the Oculus Go. Incredible ability to put yourself in a virtual environment, which can be used for therapy. Folks with acute or chronic pain can go into cold environments and throw snowballs and lower their pain thresholds um, or, and use less pain meds. Or yeah. to take a patient about to go have a surgical procedure and let them be more relaxed and see what's going to happen or take them to the beach all the way to being used for surgical education to take a surgeon and let them practice a virtual surgery with virtual instruments for that exact patient. So that's another kind of exciting area that uh, is speeding up and what used to, you know, would have taken $10 million worth of equipment in one lab can now be sent to you by, uh, by Facebook. And now we're seeing lots of doctors and other innovators building on those platforms to create novel healthcare solutions. I'm really excited about the VR stuff. I, I gave it a shot at uh, the last Vader uh, conference and it, it's pretty cool. I'm waiting for that to become pervasive where, you know, everyone can just get out there and pick their VR unit for migraines or pain and be able to use that at home. It sounds phenomenal. Even things like uh, PTSD, uh, yeah. some of London medication, uh, people are afraid of heights, yeah. uh, all sorts of interesting applications that beyond including the future of the doctor visit. So right now we're kind of on a Zoom Skype-like connection you know, imagine when you literally feel like you're in the room with your doctor oh, yeah. or a team of doctors and getting your yeah. virtual rounds done. So the idea of a virtual checkup is not just the camera and, you know, yeah. your digital thermometer. It may be this whole virtual layer. There's already this concept that's moving in many situations to admit patients to home, send them to the hospital. Let's say if it's straightforward pneumonia, normally they'd require to be in the, in the uh, mm-hmm. hospital for several days, expensively, and you can get sick from other things. Now we're sending folks to be admitted to home with the nurse and some smart pumps, but the way to connect those dots to those virtual check-in visits is going to be part of hopefully bending the cost curve and improving outcomes in healthcare. And the economics of that might actually justify that. You know, that's that whole model of uh, the way Uber's disrupted. Like you don't need to own, which means maybe the future of hospitals is they're all your home. Your home transforms into a hospital when you need one as opposed to having these incredibly expensive, heavy overhead buildings. Um, lots of lots of exciting opportunities out there. So um, last question for those who are listening in who have some kind of a diagnosed condition already, so let's say heart, diabetes, et cetera. What is the one thing you want people to keep in mind as they think of, of their own treatment? Well, what is that all of us can become sort of healthcare catalysts? If you have common condition, hypertension, high blood pressure, you know, and you're going to the clinic once a week or a month and getting your blood pressure checked and they change your meds. Well, go out to the Apple store, Best Buy or Amazon, buy a connected blood pressure cuff, connect that to your smartphone, look at the dashboard of data. Maybe you can get some insights of when it's running high or low. What if you could send that to your doctor, whether they want to see it or not? Maybe you can encourage them to 
figure out ways to integrate that into the, into your medical record. So that's a little simple example of taking an existing well-worn path and hopefully improving care for yourself and maybe even educating your care team. Um, I would encourage, uh, there's lots of interesting, you know, quantified self-technology. If you are an autoimmune patient, uh, there's an app started by a, 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 a autoimmune patient called Mimee, M-Y-M-E-E. Um, she'll be speaking like special medicine. She started to solve her own problem with autoimmune disease by creating an app to help track symptoms in clever ways and to blend that data together and to run clinical trials. So with these complex autoimmune diseases, you can become a data donor and also uh, get insights yourself. Um, I think you know that part of the issue is not waiting for the future to arrive. The idea that patients can be included in innovation. If you have an idea, find a kid down the street and your local doctor and, and build the app that might solve that pain point. And because now in this exponential age where you literally can build either a startup or a device or a prototype uh, with a 3D printer for $100 that you stick a million dollar lab, there's a lot of opportunity to democratize innovation. The, the DIY movement, the idea of we're not waiting with the whole population of type 1 diabetics and their families has started hacking uh, insulin pumps to create artificial pancreases. It's now accompanying uh, Bigfoot Biomedical yeah. as a debater event. Are examples of folks not waiting and taking their own entrepreneurial engineering uh, and other capabilities to catalyze things forward uh, and not just waiting for traditional you know, biopharma medical device exactly. world to, to solve it for them. Exactly. It really is a beautiful time to be alive and, and to be contributing and owning your own health. So it's a great advice there. Daniel, this has been just a total blast. Thank you so much. Hope we'll see you soon, maybe after the next uh, big event that you've got. And of course, those of you who are listening in, make sure to check it out. It's in November in San Diego. Daniel, give us the URL again one more time. Exponential Medicine, exponentialmedicine.com. It's November 4th through 7th at the historic and iconic hotel Del Coronado, where they film some like it hot. So we have a great experience uh, with talks, breakouts, deep side bonding, silent discos. Uh, it's a bit of a, it's not quite Burning Man meets medicine on the beach, but it's a nice convergence of people and ideas and energy that sparked a lot of, uh, of new uh, collaborations and hopefully advancements uh, across healthcare. Very exciting. Thank you so much again. For the rest of Thank you, I'm going to see you soon. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.